Blog Talk Radio. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I was just sitting here and thinking to myself, isn't it a wonderful Wednesday afternoon? And then it occurred to me, it's not a Wednesday afternoon. It's actually Thursday afternoon. Hi, everybody. It's me. I'm about a minute late or so, but what a surprise. If you listen to my show, I'm always like 10 minutes late. Just kidding. I'm usually about a minute or two late. And maybe that's because I'm so, so, so excited and um, extremely honored, actually, to have Dr. Feldman on the show today. I just want to do a really quick reminder that after we complete the interview with Dr. Feldman, we're going to be following that up with another interview, actually, both poet and filmmaker Keith Boynton is coming on the show at 2 o'clock Central Standard Time today. He's a filmmaker, he's a poet, he's a playwright. His recent project, the one that I didn't to this morning today, is called Seven Lovers Movie, which is so excited. I've seen bits and pieces. Sadly, I wasn't able to finish the entire film, but I'm so super excited about getting a chance to talk about the show. And then after that, of course, obviously I'm taking off Friday because I'll be at the special event on Saturday. I don't want to forget to mention this to everybody, not so much for my benefit, because yes, I am a vendor, but I would love it all if you would participate. And this is, of course, the individuals who are located in the Wisconsin area. There's a facility um, called Pillar and Vine, which is a nonprofit, which is, of course, located in the Fond du Lac area slash Brandon, Wisconsin. And so what they're doing is they're putting on an actual um, event called the Pillar and Vine Brandon Family Fest. This is going on this coming Saturday. It's going on starting at 10 a.m., and it's going all the way till 10 p.m. There's going to be a vendor sale. There'll be food. There'll be music. There'll be, of course, bouncy houses, children's activities. You name it, they've got it. And I don't want to forget to mention that Pillar and Vine, actually, they are literally one of the few facilities up there that are a nonprofit that provide quality services to children as well as to foster and biological families in both Fond du Lac and surrounding areas. So if you want to do something instrumental as it relates to family care, stop on by. It's actually going to be at the Brandon Community Park. Um, Don't quote me because I don't have an exact address, but if you go ahead and Google it, you'll be able to find it's located in Brandon, Wisconsin. Me and my kiddos are going to be packing up and we'll get there around 930. We'll probably stay somewhere from about 10 to 4 or however long it takes for me to sell my chili and truffles. So please, please, please come out and support. So without further ado, let's get Karen on the line and we'll begin our interview. Hi, Karen. Hi. Were you listening to me going on and on and on? Sorry. (laughs) We said it at the same time. Well, you know, the thing is that there's like so much news and so many things that's always going on. So whenever I do a show, I try to tell everybody, hey, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. It's kind of killing 13 birds with one stone. Make sense? Yes. Okay, good. And now I'm uh, incredibly intimidated by today's guest, which would be you, because I wasn't really completely 100% involved with the whole scope of services and things that you do until I started researching you. Holy mackerel! You are one little <laughs> coconut full of accomplishment. Do you know that? Uh, well, well, I have to have grits right on that topic, right? <laughs> yes. As a matter of fact, I was just going to say your father is probably roaming around up there in heaven somewhere and saying, that woman is full of moxie and all sorts of grit. That's my favorite word, moxie. But the grit thing, and I think the, we're going to go extensively into that entire subject of grit because I find it so fascinating. And most people are, are not really familiar with the concept of what grit means or what grit means to you, I should say. Um, I thought it would be best, if you don't mind, could we start off by maybe talking about your father, Mars? You have mentioned that he stated that you were gritty before it was trendy, which I think is so cute. So I want you to tell us a little bit about your father and how he, of course, left an impression on you both personally and professionally. Oh, I love that you asked me that question. I mean, this is actually, <laughs> when uh, when I get to explore, this is what some, one of the favorite parts of, of writing this book. Um, so my father, Marcel, 
he actually um, went through the Holocaust. He went through war camps, and he came to America. First he went to Israel, then he came to America. And he was the kind of person who always just had, like, goals, and he didn't let things um, get in his way. And he actually passed away pretty um, early in his, in his mid-60s. And even in his death, he was a role model and, like, taught me how to be resilient and how to, again, um, to, to live a life of purpose. So I feel greatly honored that I can dedicate my book to him and that in this way his legacy lives on. So um, that's a terrific part of this. Oh, I imagine so. Now, because, of course, now, was he an actual survivor of a Holocaust camp? I guess I'm curious. That's one of my big things. That's that's one of the things that I try to cover as much as possible is those that have survived and lived through that experience. Was he able to share some of that with you, or was he open to sharing any of that, or, or so just discussing it or bringing it to life? My in Romania, and he was in a work mm-hmm. camp. So it wasn't a traditional, let's say, concentration camp, Got but it. he was in a work camp, and he was displaced, and his family lost everything in the war. And um, he did share. Um, um, my sister and his and him and uh, cousin all went back to Romania many years later. Um, and he did. He was he was open about sharing that um, with us. But mm-hmm. again, I think not from um, you know different people. And uh, you know, there's no judgment here. You know, have processed that in different ways. Sure. But he always was a kind of person who tried to learn and to grow. And that was something that really stuck with me. So. Um, he just wasn't a complainer. He just was like he got the job done. And he was very committed to his family and making a life for himself. And, you know, he came here with nothing. And as I said, he went to Columbia and he was a hospital administrator. And he was always also really interested in helping people. And so I think I also got that from him as well. Oh, my goodness gracious. How sweet is that? It just kind of gives you goosebumps just listening. At least to me it does, actually. It's quite mm-hmm. it's very touching to see that familial sort of relationship where he has kind of left that permanent imprint on you, which I think is really neat. And it's kind of formulated the person that you've become, obviously. Would you say if I walked up to you today or tomorrow that you would, would be somewhat of a walking representation of your father? Would that be a correct assessment in some ways? I guess so. I feel like I have a lot of his personality. Um, so yes, and you know, as I said, he's been, he passed away already a number of years ago. And so, um, it's just a nice way to kind of keep his, um, memory alive. So, um, so that's great. And also, and, and, and I can't let my mother, like, as I said, I I feel very blessed. I also Hmm. have a terrific mom who is alive and she's incredibly optimistic and she really is always, and I write about her in the book, um, but she always is looking at like not even half full, like it's always full. And she's always, whenever something happens, she just thinks, well, well that's going to make a great story or how do we look at that? And so that is just something that is in the essence of me is that kind of optimistic mindset. And so um, I think I'm a product of both of them. Now, correct me because, I, I forgive me, I was unclear about this. Now, were either of your parents actual psychologists or were they in the same field that you were in or is this something a little bit different for you versus something your parents did? I wasn't sure if it oh, was so a family my, background. Oh, my, father, my father was a hospital administrator and he worked in a, like in a okay. nursing home and my mom was a social worker. So not a psychologist, ah. but very close. Gotcha. Okay, got it. So there's some connection there. I, I wasn't 100% yeah. sure, so I thought, okay, yeah. fine. So kind of let's backtrack a little bit because most of us that are, well, what I, I don't like to use the word normal because I don't think normal really exists, and I probably shouldn't say that to a psychologist, but I'm going to. Um, <laughs> most of us that walk around, and, and I obviously, of course, I'm always very appreciative of individuals who are in your particular field. Um, what were some of the 
predominant motivations behind your decision to become a clinical psychologist? What brought all of that about? Was it a certain instance? Was it just an instinct? Tell us a little bit about that. So I, um, I, I guess I, I went to Barnard College, and um, they had this thing called the Toddler Center. And in this Toddler Center, they would bring these adorable two-year-olds to school there, and they would come, like, as a two-year-old program, and we would do research there. And this whole idea of both, like, working with the kids plus, like, doing research, it really started to appeal to me. So um, it was like at Barnard that that crystallized. I also had the opportunity to take classes with Walter Michelle. Um, and learn from him, and just everything about that, it just everything about psychology just resonated, and the combination of both research and practice was really appealing to me. So, um, and I love to learn, and so getting a PhD, more school was always, it, it was, I was up for the task. Right, I gotcha. Now, I know obviously, and we'll go into this obviously during the course of the interview, but of course, at this point in time in your career, you were dealing with both uh, adults as well as adolescents, et cetera. Earlier on in your career, were you predominantly working with just adults and then it transitioned into teens and adolescents, or was it, has it always been primarily both sides of the fence? So I guess it, I I actually got my PhD at St. John's. They had a clinical child program. So my um, bulk of my career has been with children and with teens. I do also work with adults who have anxiety-related disorders. Um, I do a lot of testing. But I guess my real focus has been in children. I feel like children are very malleable, not that adults aren't. But um, I, I really like to, the idea of intervening early and development. And um, so I've always really been interested in children and teens and, um, and working in schools and, and in this kind of uh, partnership relationship. Gotcha. And one of the interesting things that just came up the other day, actually, with a colleague of mine, they were talking about this, and I'd like to get some reflections from you on this, obviously. It's been stated in a number of different, uh, across the board in terms of mental health and things along those lines, that children sometimes can probably be some of the more challenging patients when it comes to diagnosis and being able to assist them. Would you concur with that? Or based on your experiences, would you say that it's been a little more simplistic for you to work with this category of um, children? I think that, I think maybe not, I wouldn't say necessarily the diagnostic part, but I think what is challenging about working with kids and teens is that often they're not the ones who decides to come into treatment. Their parents, their teachers often see that ah. there's a problem. Whereas with an adult, sure. an adult, if you get them in your office, they basically have decided at this point that they're ready to work. So when you work with kids and teens, part of it is you really need to get that buy-in. Sometimes you're at step negative. You're not even at step one. And so part of my work, sure. and that's sort of what I've been interested in, is like how do you get people to have buy-in? How do you have people develop an interest, a passion, a motivation? And that's really also really like something that I'm interested in, is like how, how do people change? How do you get them motivated to change? How do you get them to do the hard work? That therapy, um, you know, entails. Sometimes you often have to be uncomfortable to get comfortable. And so I think that with kids and teens, sometimes you're – in a different place in the work of progress than you are with an adult. Gotcha. I see what you mean. Yes, because it's been said before, and I've heard this, and I, of course, have done therapy on and off my whole life, so I'm first here to tell you, of course, and I'm sure you know this, oftentimes there's a stigma that's involved with seeing psychologists or individuals who are in the field, and somewhat people can be a bit standoffish about wanting to approach you for assistance or help. 
So let's say, for instance, mm-hmm. someone's listening today and they're kind of sitting in that boat and they're saying to themselves, you know what, you know, there's all this stuff that surrounds mental health and psychology and all this good stuff. How would you encourage them or, or what would you say to them um, that would kind of reinforce the fact that this is a, a substantially good, healthy thing for us to embark upon? Make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I often say to people, like, if parents are talking to their teens or their kids or if to think about it, it's like a coach. Just like a lot of times somebody would use a coach to help with a sport or an activity, that's how I see my job. I mean, I guess, you know, psychologists work in lots of different ways, but I work very collaborative with people. We have a goal. We work on it. My goal is, is basically to make myself so that you don't need me anymore to teach you skills and then for you to kind of be able to walk out the door. So mm-hmm. I do think about mental health and um, things like also gaining resilience and character strength and, and, and being less worried as something that's a teachable skill. And just like any other teachable skill, sometimes you need a teacher to kind of get you there. Sure. I agree with you, definitely. Of course. And on that caveat, I guess we should ask that question. Uh, as far as you, Karen, have there been particular teachers within your lifetime, whether they be professional or otherwise, that have really helped you to become better at your skills and to do better and to work harder? Any influences out there for you personally? Yes, definitely. Um, So when I started graduate school, I had an opportunity to work with a professor for all my years. Her name is Elizabeth Brandolo, and um, she was a terrific mentor to me. She really taught me how to also work with next uh, generation. So, like, when I've had a lot of the work that I've done in this book, I've worked with teens, and I always keep how she taught me and how she treated me in the forefront of my mind when I'm working with Mm -hmm. people who are young people themselves. Um, There's also Dr. Ray Giuseppe at the Albert Ellis Institute who also took me under his wing. I feel like I've been very blessed and at Barnard, Larry Aber and Walter Michelle, there have definitely been people in my life that have taken me under their wing and I feel that that mentor relationship has been like the strongest thing in, in sort of shaping me and my direction as a psychologist. So I definitely feel that there are teachers who um, have very much influenced me. Oh, definitely. And of course, I noticed that uh, for your book, obviously, the foreword was written by uh, Dr. Thomas is it Hoare, H-O-E-R-R, or I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. Her. Um, yes. I was just curious what made you pick him, meaning the connection or relationship with him, and tell us a little bit about him and how he contrib- helped to contribute to your book. Oh, yes. Oh, I feel, like, very blessed that he decided to write the forward for me. Um, he actually has written on the topic of, of grit. He has written a book called Fostering Grit and the Formative Five, where he talks about grit and other character strengths as teachable um, things that you can do in schools. He is a principal. Um, we actually happened to be talking at the Learning in the Brain conference at the same sort of like I was speaking first and he was speaking second. And a lot of times okay. when you come to these conferences, you um, hear people together, but you don't realize, you, people think you know them, but I didn't know him. And through doing this conference together, we got to know each other. We share very similar um, viewpoints. And I feel like his writing a forward has really, I, I love that his forward is in front of my book. So um, he has the same kind of viewpoint about trying to teach these skills. Um, he feels, you know, similarly like that you need support, you need mindset, you need behavior. And so our, our thinking is very much aligned. And that relationship, and um, I'm still in touch with him, and it's been a, a great one. And, and, again, I feel very fortunate that he agreed to write my forward. That's wonderful, actually. 
Now, um, as a clinical psychologist, I know that you typically, I was going to say, obviously, all different doctors use all different formats and, and sorts of therapy with individuals. I know that you tend to favor cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, some of us that are listening in, obviously, they're saying, what? She's talking French or German to me. So if you wouldn't mind maybe delving a little bit into what type of cognitive behavioral therapy, what's involved with that, and, and what do you feel your success rate is? Or in general, actually, we should talk about that because some doctors have disputed the effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy versus other therapies. So obviously you're the expert. Um, talk to me a bit about that type of therapy and why you choose to use that. So cognitive behavioral therapy, I guess, was started, I mean, to the people who are sort of um, – most noted in terms of cognitive behavioral psychology are Albert Ellis and Aaron Back. But basically, they developed this type of therapy where the idea is that when we think about things and act differently, it changes our behavior and our emotions. So in cognitive mm -hmm. behavioral therapy, the job is for me to help individuals identify what is the thinking and the behavior that's interfering with their lives, and how do we think and act in ways that are going to make them feel better. And so that's kind of cognitive behavioral therapy on, on one foot, kind of. But um, And in terms of the success rate, I would say that um, I really like cognitive behavioral therapy because I think it can often be successful. Sometimes it needs to be done, you know, in conjunction with medication. But I, I, I do sort of gravitate towards it because I think that people um, can understand the tools. It's very collaborative. And I do feel like people, if they're willing to do the work, can often get really better. Oh, sure, definitely. And is this a therapy that's utilized on both adults and teens, just so I understand it, because that was my guess. Oh, yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So cognitive behavioral therapy is for adults, it's for children, it's for teens. It's just the notion of teaching people that it's not the situation, but the way we think and we act that is causing something. So, like, for example, let's say somebody is very, like, socially anxious. Um, they might mm -hmm. think, well, of course those people are mean. And it's kind of my job to sort of teach them, well, how are you thinking about that? that? What, how are you acting in that, that situation? Are you giving out vibes like, don't talk to me? Are you saying, oh, my God, everybody hates me? How do we identify those thoughts? How do we challenge those thoughts? How do we take small steps behaviorally also to change the thing? And that, so moving away that the situation causes the anxiety, but rather the way we think and we act. Gotcha. No, I'm curious to ask this question because this occurs to me every time I go to see my therapist. So logically, I must ask you, um, are there points in times or periods where uh, an actual clinical psychologist such as yourself, how do you kind of not necessarily diffuse yourself from a, from a situation, but I can imagine that um, psychologists deal with very emotional situations that can have impacts on them, not just um, mentally, but obviously you feel for your patients. How do you find yourself disconnecting from that so as not to, I mean, frankly, I don't know how you guys don't walk around crying half the time. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I can imagine it must right. be very, um, it's all consuming, that sort of stuff. So how does an actual psychologist kind of separate that, the you know, the professional side of things and then there's that emotional side of things? How do you balance that? Right. Um, I think that, again, like you have to, I think that it's really important for people to have, take care of themselves and to do things that, you know, and not just see patients night and day, but sort of we take care of ourselves and if we can, I think, again, it's important to have a little bit of that 
sort of distance, not that you want to be distanced to your client, but I think it gives, when you are distanced, when you have that distance, you can see things a little bit clearer. So I think that, again, and I think that you have to sometimes, you, I think it's also it's important when things are getting kind of um, emotional to sort of share that with the client. Like, that was really hard, and that, like, is really painful. I don't think that there's, I don't think that that's being unprofessional to do that. Um, sure. So oh, I think in all those that's ways, it. we can do things. Of course. You know, I want to switch gears a little bit because I know um, based upon, and those of you that are listening and that may not have visited um, Doctor's website as of yet, I've been on there and I did an extensive look on everything. One of the things that you offer, I see, is a monthly blog. So I was curious to ask you where your content comes from. It's like, where do you originate all sorts of new and original material? Where does that come from and, and what sort of response do you get from doing something like that? Oh, so I I never really like that's a good question. Um, I guess like <laughs> for you. me, I just start like it becomes sort of topical. Like some things I'm interested in. Like recently, for example, I have a dog, and I was like walking okay. down the street, and this has happened to me a whole bunch of times where I'm walking down the street and I see these people who also have a dog, and they're like just like calling from their window to their dog to stop barking at me, which is completely ineffective because the dog is like completely barking at my dog. And sure. it's like, I just thought about that. That made a really interesting blog about like effective commands and what we can learn from the dog. So sometimes a right. lot of times just musings that happen, but I do have an interest like in general in terms of habits and willpower and how people change. And so a lot of um, my blogs have to do about that topic. They also sometimes have to do about my dog. Um, but I guess the things that's sort of appealing to me are things that I write about. Okay, gotcha. Makes sense. I can see that. And obviously, of course, they're entertaining. I've read some of them, and they're informative and educational to those of us who aren't necessarily in a particular field that you're in. So I think it's a useful mm-hmm. resource, clearly. And one of the things that I saw that you were multiple – oh, you have to talk about this, because I saw your – I could feel your excitement all the way from the computer when I read this. Because I understand that you were a participant of the IPEN, the IPEN conference last year yeah. in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I understand you're going back for 2018. So those that are listening in that may want to know, hey, what's IPEN all about and, and why she's so excited, tell us about that. Tell us about that experience and why you choose to participate, right. what's so involved. So IPEN stands for International Positive Education Network. And it is an international movement. Um, and what it's committed to is to bringing what we call positive education into schools. So the idea okay. is that education is traditionally thought about as math and reading and academics. And what positive education is about is seeing education as almost a double helix, where, yes, we're going to be teaching reading, writing, and math, but also we are going to teach things like kindness and empathy and grit and self-control and flexibility, and those things are going to be taught in schools in the same way that we talk, teach academic skills. And the idea behind it is, is that if you ask parents what do they really want for their youngsters, yes, they want them to know math and reading, but they also want them to to be good citizens. They want them to have good problem solving. They want them to be flexible. And especially in today's world and what we want for today's workers, you're going to know a lot of facts from your smartphone, you know? And the thing that we really need are some of these kind of non-cognitive skills. So IPEN is this movement where they're doing it in all different countries, Australia and India and England, and people from all over the world come together and share what they're doing in their countries and share what they're, what's working and what's not working. And I have the privilege in 2017 to, um, to speak at the conference, and hopefully I'll get the honor to uh, speak in 2018. So 
Um, it, it was a great, great experience. And it was actually not a conference. It was a festival. And it really was a festival in that spirit. It was just a lot of positive energy and positive emotions um, at this conference. Nice. Very nice. And that's kind of what I figured. I could just, like I said, I could feel this excitement. And I thought, oh, my God, she must totally love this. So that's absolutely <laughs> awesome. Now, on a side note, before we talk about you as a psychologist and some of the other things that you offer, I thought it best to mention that you are available. You've done in the past things such as workshops and lectures and training seminars. So because I have business owners and other individuals listening out there, talk a little bit about some of the um, how often do you get in terms of your time? Are you able to commit to doing things like training or, or workshops? And do you travel? And, and give us kind of the who, what, when sort of thing and scenario in case people might be interested in having you come and speak and, and talk to other people in their groups. Right. So I love, I mean, I like writing the book, but I love giving workshops. That's actually, if you had to say what my favorite thing to do in my time, it is um, talking. So I've actually taken, and that's something I talk about in the book. It's like you take your strength and you build on your strength. So when I was young in school, I always did well in school, but I used to get a seven on my report card for excessive talking. So I've taken the skill of excessive talking and I've made it into um, a platform for doing these workshops. So yes, I love speaking. It depends, you know, sometimes I have more availability than other times. Um, so I work in a school, sometimes I have some flexibility in terms of my time when I can do these workshops. But again, that is something that um, I really enjoy. And if people are interested in finding out more about my time and availability, they can either go to my website or shoot me an email. But um, that is something that I really do enjoy, talking to parents and, and schools and business people um, and helping them, you know, in, in the variety of topics that I tend to speak about. Gotcha. I understand. And, of course, I want to ask this question because, obviously, part of your time is, is structured as such, similar to mine, where we have so many different things going on. If I were to ask you what your favorite thing to do is during the day, occupationally, what would you say? You could pick one out of all those. If you even have a favorite, what? I know that. <laughs> you only uh, get to pick one. I guess. I know it's rough. I feel like it's working with the kids or working with the teens. Really? I, I, like, I guess okay. that direct working. Um, and when I'm like, what, I guess my favorite thing to do is sort of a combination of things. One thing I do in my school is I do workshops. And then I do the workshops with older students, and then I, together with the older students, we turn key and we teach younger students that. So actually, my favorite thing to do, and this is one thing, is to work with the kids to make workshops and then present these workshops to the younger students. And what I find in doing this is that that's one of the best ways to actually have the older students learn the message. So doing this process where I'm actually working with kids and giving workshops, that's probably my favorite thing to do. That's absolutely awesome. Now you got to tell me what your favorite thing to do is when you're not being a very important clinical psychologist. And that means from a personal note, what would we find Karen oh. sitting around doing on a regular basis? Oh, um, I love hiking. <laughs> I'm very passionate really? about hiking. Yes, I love okay. hiking. I love being in nature. I'm actually, and I don't love this part, but I am training for the marathon. I'm not loving that as much as I love hiking, but I am doing that. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Now, um, what made you want to do that? Because that's exciting and, like, scary all at the same time. It is. It's exciting and scary. I guess I've done right? a half marathon. And I felt like uh, the thing about doing this work is that one of the things that you learn is that when you take on challenging things, it makes you want to take on other challenging things. And as I said, I've done half marathons. I've done about three of them. But I've never done the New York City Marathon, nor I've done any marathon. 
And I guess felt, I felt like it was a little bit on, on, on my bucket list. I'm, I'm 48 now, and I wanted to do the marathon before I turned 50. So I just said, I'm going to do it. And it's, it's hard. I'm right now in the training schedule, and it's like a lot of running. And, so, and it's a lot of time. <laughs> so um, I guess that's, that's how it is. And I think, like, but I like, oh in God. a way, the discipline. And I like, um, I, I, I like being committed. And, and I always feel like, you know, I really ask my patients and people I work with to do hard things. And I don't think it's fair to ask them to do hard mm. things if I'm not experiencing it, too. So I that's totally kind of like sure. why I'm doing it. And I'm also that's doing awesome. it in, um, and I'm doing it for a purpose because one time I ran a race. And my daughter said to me, she's like, okay, so did you run away from somebody? Like, she's like, why did you do this half marathon? I'm like, no, I wasn't running away from someone. She's like, did you do it for a charity? I'm like, no. And I was like, she's like, I don't really get why you're running a half marathon. So then I'm like, you know what? She has a point. So I am running the New York City Marathon, but I'm doing it for Tourette. And Tourette is an organization I feel very close to. Um, I have a lot of patients who have Tourette's and OCD and ADHD. And so I'm trying to do it in that honor. So when you do something for yourself plus somebody else, I feel like you can do great things. So that's what I'm doing. (laughs) I'll let you know how it goes. That is awesome. I I told you, this makes me super committed because now I cannot back Right. Yeah, let's just talk about commitment. Let me tell you, my girlfriend, Sonia Seria, who came on the show not so long ago, she made me accountable for two miles a day every day. Thanks, Sonia. And you can imagine I had that same excitement every time I do it. Yay, I'm so happy I'm accountable. Why did I open my big trap? But honestly, don't you feel much better? That's one of the things that I like is the fact that at the end when the physical exercise, there's something to be said about physical exercise. Because, well, and I'm sure you're familiar with this. I'm a 30-year bipolar patient. So one of the things they used mm. to tell me early on was take all that anger, take all that anger and frustration, or if you have a panic attack, do something physical. So I just kind of trained myself to learn to do stuff that's very physical, motivated. So um, the running is great. But I'm 48, so I'm exhausted and I'm fat and I'm short and I don't walk as much and I don't run as much as I should. So <laughs> it's a it's a <laughs> learning experience. So kudos to you because I can't do a marathon. I can even thinking about a marathon is making me tired. But I'm not going to discourage you, I, so we should stop talking about what that. What I would say is you can't do a marathon yet. That's what I would say. Okay. And just, sometimes okay. just, you never know. You know, never know what will inspire you. I don't think if you would have asked me this 10 years ago, I would say, even like I when I did a half marathon, people had signs up saying, you guys are half crazy. And I'm like, yes, we're, we're only half crazy. But I, I thought that those people were right. So you never know gotcha. what, what will be in store for you. You betcha. Now, staying on the personal side, we don't want to forget to mention this. Obviously, you have children. And, of course, obviously, I have individuals from all across the planet that watch. And I'm sure if they're looking at you right now, they're saying, I wonder if that Dr. Feldman is single. And that answer would be. I'm married. I'm married. Ah. I have two kids. So, so I'm married. And my husband's very supportive of all the the crazy things that I do because there are lots of them. And sometimes he has to hold the bag (laughs) because of that. And I have two kids. I have two teenagers. Um, oh my so, God, woman! Uh, yes. <laughs> I've been there, so, done um, that. I can remember those days. Yeah. So okay. um, I have one son who's starting college, and I have a daughter who's going to be entering tenth uh, grade. So that's awesome. Now you know. I also have to ask you, of course, because I'm aware of the fact that your birthday is the day before Valentine's Day. So I was thinking I have to ask her: <laughs> Did you get married like on Valentine's Day, so you could like have your birthday first and then your marriage second, or like your wedding day after your birthday? <laughs> I don't know what made me think of that, but I'm like, I'm totally asking her. Because that's really cool. Nothing, nothing, no. And also, by the way, Abraham Lincoln's birthday is February 12th, too. So I'm between Abraham oh. Lincoln's birthday and Valentine's Day. 
That is so cool. I totally didn't know that. Thank you. See, <laughs> folks, we have actual useful trivia on the show. It's not just talking about really pertinent things. It's really useful trivia, too. So there you go. Now, before we start talking about uh, the book itself, which is entitled The Greek Guide for Teens with a very, very long title thereafter, um, I wanted to mention that some of the other things as a, psych- as a clinical psychologist you offer are other things such as um, psychological testing. You do both school and camp consultation as well as wellness and weight loss training. So if you wouldn't mind for me, please just talk about some of the other things, meaning that especially the school and camp consultation, because typically I've noticed that in the past, usual schools will have an on-site sort of counselor slash whatever. So talk a bit about how you enhance the school consultations or add on to existing services there as well as this wellness and weight loss training because I'm curious about that because I'm fat. <laughs> and I'm sure other people out there okay. are curious too. So, okay, in terms of school consultation type of work, so I work often like with families or with schools in terms of programs. So let's say for me like there's a youngster who's struggling in a classroom. I guess I would partner with either school or a youngster to try to figure out how to help this kid to be more successful. What interventions can we do at the child level? What can we do in the classroom level? What can we do in an administrative level? Since I do work in a school, I can I have that viewpoint to sort of help and think about that. So that's why I do a lot of kind of interventions on with schools. With camps, I used to work at Camp Ramah. Um, which is a, um, a day camp, which is a very interesting day camp because the counselors sleep there. So it's like a sleepaway camp for the counselors, but a day camp for the um, for the kids, um, which makes a very nice model because then the counselors actually are very, they stay focused on the kids because they have a whole night to hang out with each other. But um, And I worked there for eight years, and I do think this thing called expert online training where we develop youth for youth professional like training videos to help counselors um, be the best counselors they can be. I used to, you know, my kids, I told you now, are, you know, are, are teenagers. And I used to, when right. I used to work with them, before I had teenagers, kids who couldn't, my kids now can obviously be counselors. But I used to be like, oh, these kids could do this. But when you really look at that, the kids who are counselors are really young, and they are taking care of these little kids in big groups in the heat. It's not an easy job. And a lot of them don't have training. So part of what I've tried to do is to try to help them um, understand about children, understand about techniques. They're actually, the people think this is my first book, but it really isn't my first book. The first book I actually wrote was a choveret, which in Hebrew means workbook for Camp Ramah for the counselors. So I wrote a workbook, which was like a week-by-week training manual for the counselors um, at Camp Ramah. And it was used there, and I worked with the teens and the counselors to learn how to be effective counselors. So um, I really do feel like a lot of these things can be taught, and I think that um, and if we can teach psychology in a way that's accessible and, like, brings the research out and helps people to understand it, I don't think anyone wakes up and says, I'm going to be a lousy counselor or I'm going to make a bad decision with a kid. But sometimes things happen, and we can keep kids skills, they're going to be much better. Sure, of course, without a doubt. And on the weight loss side of things, I'm curious about that because obviously that has to be challenging because I know what it's like. I've tried to do nutrition and I've tried to try other things. Weight loss is a really difficult thing to master, isn't it, or or getting on a routine of sorts. You know what I mean? Yes, I definitely do. I actually had the pleasure of going to Judith Beck, who I mentioned earlier. Aaron Beck is like one of the founders of cognitive behavioral psychology. And his daughter, who's no slouch in herself, Judith Beck, is at the University of Pennsylvania. And she has cognitive behavioral treatments for weight loss. And I had the opportunity to attend her workshop for like a two-day workshop there. 
And it's really about having how you think about food and how you think about weight loss instead of just like it's not just about the calories. And I was very um, impressed by that. And um, she has a book on that topic. And so a lot of times if I work with clients, I try to use these kind of cognitive behavioral things because obviously everyone knows, you know, there's a certain way to eat, but why are people not doing that? And so I'm really kind of interested in that notion of like, if we all know what we need to do, why are we not doing it? And what gets in our way? And so that's what's something that's really interesting to me. You betcha. And I don't want to forget to mention before we get to the book here, I know in the past you've served as the uh, past president of the school division of the Westchester County Psychological Association, as well as the the chair and the co-founder of PAPIS. Now, to those of you that are listening Mm -hmm. that don't know that, parents and professional advocating for students. So my question to you is, is um, what, may, what piqued your interest about participating in both of these? And are you still actively involved with PAPAS? Because I was curious to ask about that. So I'm not, so, I'm not involved with PAPAS because PAPAS was a, um, a group that we formed when my kids were at Westchester Day School, which is an elementary and middle school. And since my kids are not in the school anymore, I'm not involved with that. But um, I really do think that it was a great thing. It was kind of, we didn't have like, a, a, like in public schools, we have things called like a SEPTA, like a special ed PTA. But it was a place for parents and administrators to come together and to brainstorm about kids. And I was really glad that we brought that to the school. So that's what was my involvement with Pappas. And um, Westchester County Psych Association, I am very involved with. I'm no longer the president of the school division, but I'm a very active member. Um, that's something that rotates with time. But Westchester County Psych Association, has been really good to me. Um, it helped me actually find my first job working in a school, and um, it's a really nice community for me. So I am very involved. Um, and as the person who's a leader, I had the opportunity to bring speakers or do programs for the psychologists in, in this area. That's really cool. I like that. That's awesome. See? And then you wonder why I'm intimidated by you. You've done everything under the sun, and I haven't. Like, I feel like I'm failing in this whole thing. Okay, so first of all, the book. I understand that your actual official, what you'd call your book launch, happened earlier this month, actually, on July 9th. So first off, tell me how things went. How did it go? How was the launch itself? It was great. It was really great. It actually, it's kind of a funny story because I wanted to have my book launch at Barnes and Noble, and Barnes and Noble mm-hmm. has this um, beautiful store that opened in my neighborhood, and it's like a concept store. They have this beautiful restaurant there, and the person who's in charge of the programming, she was, I would say, resistant to reluctant about having me have my book launch there. It wasn't my fault or anything like that. She didn't know me at all. But the local authors mm-hmm. were not bringing in a lot of people. So at first she was, because, you know, if you're not going to bring people in, that's not what they want to happen. And so like everything else in my life and everything else I talk about in the book, mm-hmm. I needed to be gritty about getting the book launch at Barnes & Noble. Because as I said, even right. though I guaranteed I'd bring people, she wasn't so sure. And ultimately, I had 150 people, and I wound up exceeding her expectations about how many people would get here, and she ran out of books. So I guess that's a good sign at a book launch when you run out of books. So um, oh, it was yeah. really exciting. My mom got to come, my family, friends, teenagers. I got to interview some gritty teens. Um, they interviewed me, and it was just like a really nice day. That's absolutely awesome. Um, So clearly, you know, I have to ask the obvious question, which is, of course, to those of you that do not know, there is a total of of four participants, meaning four students that actually helped you with, and this is a two-sided thing, so you folks know. There's a book, and then there's also the video that was done. So let's start off with the video. What was the um, purpose or the, um, who actually came up with that concept, actually? Because that's kind of neat and out of the ordinary to do a video and a book as well. So talk about that a little bit, if you would. 
So what the like I said to you before, what I've noticed not what I, it's not what I noticed. What the research says is that teens. Well, this is also not what the research says, but anyone who has a teen knows this that they're like a kind of challenging audience. You can't just give a teen a book. It's like very hard to like get teens to do things that you want them to do. It's not like little kids. They're not even like adults. So what I found Mm -hmm. to be successful is more of a stealthy, indirect approach. And like I said to you before, like when I want the fifth graders to learn about kindness, I can't tell them directly to be kind to like the kids at the lunch table. But when they teach little kids, that's something I notice works well. And so the same thing here is about the videos. My goal is like if I get teens to make videos of themselves, and they love making videos of themselves, then there, <laughs> that message is going to resonate much more than anything I say. So it's teens inspiring other teens as opposed to me trying to send that same message. And it's using, again, it's kind of being stealthy and using the vehicle that teens like today, which are videos, um, to catch their attention. So that's kind of how, and everything about the book was really inspired and done in collaboration with teens. And so that's really how I got that idea. And actually, I made a book trailer, and the book trailer was done with an intern named Hannah, and she worked at my, she she didn't work, she, she was my intern, she worked for me, but she went to SAR, which is my children's school, and for senior year, they do an internship, and so what her internship was to do the social media and to do a um, a book trailer for me, and we she filmed it, she edited it, she did like she took ownership of it, and again, it came out amazing. And it shows you that when you give teens leadership and control, and they have passion, they can do amazing things. Absolutely, without a doubt. Now, was um, was there an established association with these four students that you elected to choose, or were they chosen by someone else, or how did that come about? So as I started to say, so Hannah, like, for example, she was from SAR. So my relationship, I had a bunch of teens who I worked with them. Um, so two of my first, um, I had some, um, some, one person was actually like my neighbor, Emily, who was part of uh, um, the, the book launch. She was there, and she was a teen at the time, So she and she had an interest in psychology, so she sort of decided to help me. I had another girl um, named Rachel Booty, who was also, she's actually a college student who's studying psych at Penn. She was interested. Her mom wanted her to do some work, or she wanted to do some work in the summer, so she helped me like with the writing of the book. Also, Kira and Katie, who are two, um, they're now going to college, but at the time they were high school seniors. They did their internship with me, helping me design the chapter on self-control, reading it, making sure they came with me to workshops. And then Hannah later on um, made the videos. I had another teen, Alyssa, make the videos. So I just tried to get as many teens involved with this as possible and to, to make sure that it kind of rang true to them. Very nice. Now. I know that you are a proponent for the term coming from a place of both yes and a place of joy. Most of us that live, obviously some of us like me who are mid-40s, of course, there's a whole lot of not joy necessarily and a whole lot of not yes in our lives. So speaking, whether it's, uh, generally speaking, I should say, between whether it's a teenager or an adult, how do you feel that it's best for us to find that particular personal place of yes and joy? Because obviously we all live in a world where we have tons of responsibilities and tons of upsides and downsides that happen in our life. How do we keep connected to that part of us consistently? Right. So I think that that's not always easy. We have a negativity bias. So 
back in the day when we lived in caves, you know, if a bear came into our cave, we needed to notice that versus a butterfly, not so much. So we have a tendency to focus on the negative. But I think we need to sort of connect to the positive and look for the positive and to find why we want to do it rather than why we don't want to do that. When we want to do something, and that's something actually you asked me about, like the weight loss. Like I've had weight loss myself, and in the past I always was like no chips, no ice cream, no this. And that didn't work for me. But when I focus on why it is good for me, why I want to do this, why this is better weight for my feet and it allows me to do things and I feel better, then I feel like I'm making a decision from a place of yes, and it's much easier for me to be consistent and to do the things that I want than when I do it from a place of no. Gotcha. And in Europe, just out of curiosity, in your opinion, do you find that it's easier for those that are younger, such as teenagers, versus full-grown adults? Because teenagers haven't been necessarily tainted, for instance, for lack of a better term, by some of the things that we realize as reality in the real world. So would you say that that it's easier for you to train someone to keep to that position or place in their life versus an adult, per se? Or would you say it's just a challenge for all of us? I think it's a challenge for all of us. I think... I think maybe little, little kids might see the world a little differently, you know, before <laughs> right. the age of five. But I feel like we quickly learn um, a lot about, like, you know, with this whole negative bias. So I think that it, I think it varies among individuals, but I think that in right. general, it, I think teens and adults kind of struggle with that. You betcha. Now, of course, we want to cover the obvious, which is this. To those of you that do not know, um, your definition of, the proverbial word grit might be very different in terms of other individuals and how they view something such as that. So some people would refer grit as something like gumption or or other words or adjectives to describe it. Tell us specifically what you consider the term grit to be, because that's fundamental as it relates to this book. Right. So I um, am using the word that's sort of been put on the the map by Dr. Angela Duckworth. She's out of the University of Pennsylvania. She has done research on the topic of grit. And how she defines grit is having passion and perseverance for long-term goals. One word that I would add, and I know that Angela would agree with this, though it's not her official definition, is having passion and perseverance for long-term and meaningful goals. So what does that mean? Having like a passion, having a connection to something, being able to persist on it and not drop it, and being able to be resilient even in the face of obstacles along the way. And um, for me, and, and, and when you're doing this for, for, for something that's meaningful, not something that's trivial or something you can, you know, something often that has a sense of purpose. And purpose, I mean, is that you're doing it for yourself and for other people. Sometimes with teens or kids, it's a little hard for them to even think about, you know, what's the purpose, you know, in this. Just they think more about themselves. But ultimately, if you look at really gritty people, they have these goals. They're able to persist. They're able to be resilient. And they often are doing it not only for themselves but for other people too. Uh, Definitely, without a doubt, certainly. Now, um, through the course of time, obviously one of the biggest motivations behind doing your book, it aims to help teens to build four pertinent things, persistence, perseverance, stamina, and resilience. Um, Mm -hmm. We all worry as adults, and I've got four kids of my own, about uh, teens. Obviously, being a teenager in today's society is way different than when we were kids, obviously. So do you find, uh, what were some of the STEM or core beliefs that you wanted to put within this book that you wanted to stand out to where, uh, you know, a teen or an adult would read this and say, you know what, I, I feel better about myself, I feel stronger about myself, I feel like I'm able to 
overcome my goals or, excuse me, overcome some of the challenges in my life. Do you know what I mean? Tell us some of those four, some of the more fundamental things that you insisted upon putting in this book that you feel will help people by reading it. Right. So so I think that you need to have a mindset, you need to have behavior, and you need to have a team. So what do I mean by mindset? You need to think in a certain way. So you need to have like a positive, more of a make it about yes kind of mindset. You need to be optimistic. So seeing things in terms of not falling into what we call the problematic piece, which is taking things personally or making it pervasive or making it permanent. So when something bad happens, you see it as more situational or a moment in time or that, that it will, that it's kind of keeping it small. We also know in terms of mindset that people who have a growth mindset, which is a term put on the map by Carol Dweck, is that they can, if they have a challenge, they grow from the challenge as opposed to thinking that their brain or their mind is fixed or their skills are fixed. So those kinds of mindset, that mindset is related and the research shows is to um, have to being more gritty. But it's not enough just to have that mindset. You also have behavior. You have to have commitment. You have to have practice. You can't just say, like we said about the marathon, I can't just want to be right. do the marathon and not commit and get out there and do the time. So it's also that practice. And the other part is that when you look at people who are really gritty, they don't, it's not just in the word grit, there's an I, but there's also a T, there's a team. And every gritty person has their team. They have their support. I couldn't do, like I'm getting back to this marathon metaphor, but I couldn't do it without my friend Helene. She's my support. We're doing it together. We train together. We do this together. And without that team, it's very hard to do it. So I think we need to have that mindset. We need to have that behavior. We ultimately want to have that highest level of that purpose, that we're doing this, you know, again, like, as I said, for Tourette's. We're doing this not for ourselves but for other people um, as well. So I think if you can have all those things together, that's when you can really achieve your goals. Um, And that's ultimately what I'm really interested in is that how do you get people sort of – you asked me initially how I got interested in this topic. is like how do people change? How do people make the changes and be the people that they really want to be, their best version of themselves? Well, I agree with you, definitely. And, of course, obviously one of the things that I've done, and and I want to ask you about this, is certainly uh, I'm on social media often, as most of us are, because I'm in radio, one of the things that you have to promote yourself. And one of the things that I throw out there is is that I I put daily inspirations on three times a day, and I'll say to people, you know, if you're reading this now, think about this or do this or do this. Do you think it's possible that people can start at the beginning of every day by maybe just having a positive note or a positive thought or or what what are some ways where we can kind of retrain our brain or recondition it to just maybe automatically go to the positive? Is that even a plausible idea? Yes, absolutely. So I think like just two things come to mind. First of all, one of the things I do, I actually just had some patients today that I had this conversation with, is I tell patients mm-hmm. to tell me three things that they are grateful for, three things that work, like what are three things, and to at the end of the day sort of write them down. And the reason why I ask them to do that is that that way throughout the day they are looking for the positive things in their life. Also, in terms of making changes, sometimes we don't make changes because change is so abstract. It's sort of intangible. Like it's the marathon. It's so far away. It's like, you know, it's so, a marathon is also so long. That's why marathons are so tricky, right? But this whole thing is kind of a metaphor of, of really what grit is it really about. So what we need to do is to take the abstract and make it concrete. So if you have a goal, if you could write down every day what are the advantages of accomplishing that goal and to read it every day and commit to that, that's a really good strategy to um, help people kind of get get them to be more gritty. 
that philosophy. And and what one of the coolest parts about your book is, and to those of you that don't know this, it, it is a resonating, literally, it's almost a resonating billboard, if you will, of positivity and persistence and being able to believe in yourself and believe in the power that you have within yourself. I'm not sure if you realize that, but that's one of the biggest things I believe you've accomplished within the course of this book. People are able to read it and to find ways to better themselves, which will better not only themselves, but the people around them. And and that's just my personal belief. I mean, obviously, I'm not 100% biased here, but no, I, I do believe that there's that. <laughs> Now, I have one other question that's uh, relative to the book, of course, because, you know, once I read all the different factors and different parts of the book, what I was saying to myself was, I could clearly see you going on and doing this. Um, this is going to sound weird to you. Have you ever given a thought of doing a grid guide for seniors? Because one of the things yes, I think about actually, is the fact that as we age. say that to me. Actually, oh, my God. At my book launch, they did. Somebody said the same thing. Did you ever think about doing it for seniors? I think that that's a really interesting thing, and that would actually be sort of neat, given that I told you my father really was right. the hospital administrator. Oh, my God. Health. See? <laughs> So now I don't feel yes. so stupid because I was like, I could see that only more so, you know, because of the obvious. But second of all, oftentimes when we think about phases in our life where we're going through challenges, et cetera, it can be very challenging, I've seen, in the senior community to try to keep chin up, to try to stay persistent, to try yeah. to feel good not only about themselves but their circumstances. Plus their stamina and their resilience is starting to decline with age whether they like it or not. So it's just – it was kind of one of those things that I thought about. So I was like, you know what, I'll just I show think it that, up to yeah. the doctor. And if I do that, I, I, I will give, you'll give you a shout-out. It's sort of like getting Yay! me on that track. I would, I, so love it. Thinking you know, about. I, I would actually call you and I would say, oh, so you're going to come back on the show now, right, because we have to talk about a new book, which would be yeah. – more exciting than this one actually so my final question before we go through the business end of things here is where do we see dr feldman a year from now and more importantly if someone's listened today and they actually want to meet you in person do you have upcoming events or things that you have going on that people can actually attend or meet you Okay, so the best way to figure out where I am is through my website. So when I have an upcoming talk, I put it on the website. I post it on the face on the on the homepage. So all my upcoming workshops and whether they're open to the public are, is listed on my website, which is drbaruchfeldman.com. If you also just put my right. name in, Karen Baruch Feldman, into Google, you will get my website. So that's probably the easiest way to find me and find where I am. I've got you. Okay. And then would, do you find that over – is it anticipated for you, let's say, over the next coming year? Do you think you might integrate out into doing either more schoolwork? Are you going to do an expansion of certain things as services? Are you going to slow down a little bit? That occurred to me, too. Marathon <laughs> woman, are you going to My slow down at all? Slow down a little. I don't know about that. But, I, I mean, what I guess I'm interested in is, is like sort of like kind of going in the direction that Thomas Herr went is, yes, I think grit is important, but I also think these other character strengths are important as well like empathy and problem-solving and flexibility. And so what I'm really interested in is figuring out how to teach all these things so that our kids and our teens and our us as adults can be the best version of ourselves. And so I think it's like a little incomplete just to focus on grit, and I'd like to figure out a little bit more about this, all these other character strengths. And that's why I think you see my excitement about IPEN because that's what that's really about. So um, oh, of course. that's something that I'm interested in sort of pursuing a little bit further. 
That's so exciting. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so now to the business end of things. Just so that you know and anyone that's listening in as well, you can let your fans and followers know that about two hours after this episode is finished, it becomes archived. So anybody can go back and listen in to the entire show and interview that we've done. I do not want to forget about this. I have not had the the pleasure yet of meeting Hillary Herskowitz, but without Hillary, you and I would not be meeting together. Hopefully, you can give Hillary a relatively good report card of me and say, yeah, I had a decent time on that show. I hope. I hope I've done justice yes. for you and I covered everything as I should. So, Hillary, if you are listening right now, Ms. Herskowitz, I cannot thank you enough. Not only is she absolutely lovely looking, I've never, like I said, I've never met her yet. She's just radiant and she's very sweet and she's extremely professional and I cannot thank her enough as well as you, of course, for coming on the show today because she orchestrated almost this entire thing. So thanks again, Hillary. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to go through a list of different ways to find you. So just I'll finish everything and then let me know if I've missed anything. Um, the website, as she mentioned, was actually doctor, which is D-R, and then Baruch, and that's spelled B-A-R-U-C-H, and her last name is Feldman. It's Dr. Baruch Feldman, spelled F-E-L-D-M-A-N.com, so that's the website. She is on Facebook. She has both a personal page and then a professional page under her name again, which is Dr. Karen Baruch Feldman. And Karen, in case I forgot to mention, is not the traditional spelling. It's C-A-R-E-N. She has a LinkedIn profile. She's on YouTube. Target.com, Goodreads.com, NetGallery.com, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. She has also a um, – you have a listing on ExpertOnlineTraining.com, of course, and your Twitter handle being at Karen Feldman. Yes, the only – yes, you, you, may, you know, named a lot. The one thing I would add is that people – if people are interested in seeing the videos, and I'm really excited about those videos, they can go to YouTube, and I have a YouTube channel, and it's just under the book's name. It's called The Grit Guide for Teens, and you can see and be totally inspired by these teens. Um, and there's all these different videos. Um, it's a collection of all the videos that I have of the teens. That's awesome. And I don't want to forget to mention this. Uh, your book, The Great Guide for Teens, is also available through your website, correct? They can get it directly from there when they're on there. No. Um, so if they go to my website, then they can see oh. everywhere it's offered. So then they can choose because I don't That's want to nice. tell people where to buy the book. So they That's can always right. look at That's all the right. That's absolutely yeah. wonderful. Now you have to promise me two things. You have to keep me advised, A, about your marathon, because if you don't, I'm going to bother you excessively <laughs> in the okay. nicest way possible. And second of all, you have to come back. I'm telling you, please think about the senior idea a little bit. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. But honestly, I think a woman of your stature, especially because you completed something like that, it's definitely not without the realm of possibility that you could do something like that. I think that would be absolutely yeah. awesome. Just throwing it out there. Well, thank definitely. you. But no, really definitely, without a doubt, stay, I would love you to stay in touch. And certainly, like I said, if I did a terrific job, please know that the door is open to you at any point in time, anytime you want to come back and promote anything. I would love it. Oh, great, great. This is really fun. I, um, thanks for having Thank me on. Thank you. I really appreciate that, my dear. I look forward to hopefully meeting you in person one day because, of course, I do get to um, I get to different places all the time for traveling and interviews and such. So certainly I would love to connect in person and I can eventually finish. I haven't finished your whole book yet, but I'm working on it. It's always a work in progress. Okay, good. good. But and know that I have read portions of it, and obviously that led to all of this. So definitely. Okay. You go off. Have a wonderful time today, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Okay, take care. All right, my dear. Thank you. Bye. You Thank too. you again. It was fun. Tell me she was not wonderful, right? Dr. Karen Feldman again. One more time. The website, www.drbaruchfeldman.com. She has a Facebook page, which is one of them's personal, and of course, the other is being professional. She is on LinkedIn. Her Twitter handle is at Karen Feldman. She has the YouTube channel, which you mentioned, which is, of course, under her book name, which is The Great Guide for Teens. 
She is also on Goodreads, Target.com, NetGallery.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and ExpertOnlineTraining.com. Absolutely lovely woman, which I did not doubt for one second. And, of course, like I said, do not want to forget to mention Hillary Herskowitz. You're just a doll. I really appreciate it. So in about 30 seconds, we're going to have Keith Boyton come on the air. He's probably going to kill me because I already probably missed <laughs> Let's just stop. I probably mispronounced his name, but I, I promise to make it up to him without a doubt. I just want to do a couple quick reminders before we put him on the air. First of all, to those of you that have not gone and ordered my son's book, get off your ass and go order my son's book. I know I'm being a little sassy. But um, obviously I have 5,000 friends. It's really difficult for me to get around to everybody. You all know that this has just been a labor of love for my son and for myself. Um, in case you all forgot, the Facebook page is Sergeant Seizure and the Evil Dr. Cuckoo. Once you get to that page, you'll be forwarded to the website as well as to the link where you can purchase the book. Please do so. The other thing is, is that obviously we've been talking about Cindy potentially hanging up her hat in radio. I've given some thought to this. Obviously, I just started that Patreon account where people can go ahead and support my show. So we'll get into further depth on that at another point in time. But just keep I'll, I'll keep you guys posted on the show page and my personal page. I might very well do a campaign. Um, to those of us that are independent artists, some of you may not know, but it takes a tremendous amount of work and backing to do things that we do, whether it's a show, a book, a film, or otherwise. And so without your support, we kind of sit at a standstill. And so I kind of am trying to sort things out, folks. So stay with me while I try to figure it out. So without further ado, I'm so excited that we get to put Keith on the air and let's start talking about his films and projects. Hi, Keith. Hey. I'm so Hello? excited and nervous all at the same time. I'm really nervous. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I'm super nervous. I hear you're a really big deal. Uh, that's what they that's tell true? Me. I did not know that. I'm telling you right now, you're a really big deal, and I've read your <laughs> page, and oh, my God. I Oh, my God. There's so much to talk about. This is so cool. Um, first of all, I, we have to talk about our mutual friend, Christopher LaPonta. I would not know of your existence without Christopher. So um, I'm guessing you are probably as badass as he is. Are you not? He's I awesome. am nowhere near he's as badass as Chris LaPonta. He, he's See? an amazing guy. <laughs> I know, right, isn't he? And his acting's so awesome, and he's so humble, it's, like, ridiculous. I can't even get him to claim how wonderful he is, and it just blows my mind away. So if you would... Let's start off with a story of how you met Christopher, obviously, because the listening audience, all 60,000 of them, don't really know how you have this history with this wonderful man who's coming on my show. Yeah. So basically, we were both cast in a 10-minute play. This is, I think, about 10 years ago. Uh, I had some friends who were putting together a theater company in New York City, uh, and I got kind of roped into act in this one play. And then I, I guess Chris was connected to them uh, I don't know if he auditioned or if he knew someone, actually, but we were just thrown together. Yeah. We were the entire cast of this little 10-minute play. Uh, oh, my God. And, yeah, really? it was great. It was amazing. He, was, he played a homeless guy who was collecting cans, and I was a busy businessman uh, who, who wanted to get rid of the can, and he, kept, he was feeling bad about taking it from me. Uh, so I oh kept saying, no, God. no, you take it. It's fine. It's fine. You know, you can, you can recycle it. And he was like, no, this is a special can and maybe you should have it. And uh, I'm butchering the story of the play, but, but this is, uh, this was the basic premise and it went on for 10 minutes and it was so much fun to do. Oh, that's so neat. That is, that's awesome. So that obviously begs to ask the question, which is of course you, you've moved down to do films and other things, but I'm curious to ask, do you want to go back to theater? Have you gone back to theater or plays, you know, like actual on stage? Would you continue to do that or do you now? 
I would love to do more theater. Uh, what happened was I, I kind of, I was a theater actor in high school and college. And then after college, I was honestly did not have the courage to put myself forward as an actor. Oh. Um, and that's kind of when I switched into making films because there's a little bit more uh, protection, you know, when you're behind the camera <laughs> instead of in front of it. Right. You, it's a little sure. less rejection for, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and then oh. I ended up taking like a back way back into theater uh, I ended up getting accepted at Columbia's playwriting program. Um, okay. So then I was a playwright for a few years. And then once I had done three years of that, I really, really wanted to get back into making films. And that's actually what Seven Lovers came out of. Oh, my God, that is so exciting, actually. And and forgive me for saying this, but, folks, if, you have, if you've actually looked at him or looked at his IMDb or did research on him, I'm here to tell you that the last word that I would have thought of is, like, shy or wanting to be behind the camera as it relates to you, you totally don't even come across to that. I mean, oh, good. I'm, I'm glad I'm to hear it. I'm aware of that or not. You totally, um, I mean, you're totally, like, really hands-on. You sound like you're extremely personable. You're, like, the first person to be in front of people and all festive and jovial. And that's the opinion you give me. I mean, that's what I've formulated so far. So either you're really good at faking it or you're just really better in front of the camera than you think. That could I'm be. really good at faking it. I've been shy my entire <laughs> life. And so you work out little workarounds. You work out ways to uh, put yourself sure. forward even when you don't want to or situations in which you are comfortable. And, and it's just a, it's all an elaborate ruse. Oh, my God, this is so funny. You are so cool. That's absolutely awesome. Okay, so now um, I have to ask you about this because I'm so jealous in the best way possible because you have been on holy ground and I have yet to get there, which is you attended Sundance. I'm so jealous. So jealous. We have to talk about that experience because I haven't had it yet. Apparently I'm not cool enough. I'm not one of the cool kids. They can't go to Sundance. (laughs) You are a really cool kid. So let's talk about who you are. So tell us about the Sundance experience because a lot of filmmakers listen in. Oh God, yeah. Sundance is—it's uh, an experience. It's—it's it's intense, and uh, and actually, the the when I started going there, it had very very little to do with being cool, and very much to do with the fact that my my parents had a house, uh, had a condo right in uh, Park City, just outside of Park City, and uh, when I was a kid, that was just a place to ski. I was like, yeah, Park City, Utah, that's where you go to ski. And then when I was around 16 or 17, I started getting heavily, heavily into movies, and I realized our condo was like 10 minutes away from one of the movie meccas of the world. Uh, and wow. so I, I was still in high school, and I applied for special permission to miss class and go out and attend the Sundance Film Festival. And they, they oh granted it to me. Uh, they said, yeah, you, you can do it, but you have to write up the, your experience for the school newspaper. So I was like, okay, fine. So, so I went out to Sundance, and I was there for 10 days, and I saw 39 movies. Uh, and I wrote up a little piece for the school paper. Oh, my God, how cool is that? So, like, what was the coolest part of being at Sundance, besides actually being at Sundance, of course, because that's <laughs> Is there, like, um, something that stands out? Like, I met somebody or I saw this. Or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The, I think the, the high, I've gone, I think, a dozen times now over the years. Um, and I think my biggest highlight is probably I stood next to my hero, Roger Ebert, when he was still alive. Uh, he, oh, cool. I stood directly next to him at a urinal. And uh, I did not talk to him, and he did not talk to me. But that that was a highlight. I was like 18 years old, and he was absolutely my idol. Oh, my God, that's too funny. This is, folks, why you listen to my show. So you get all that, that really cutting-edge, last first-minute detail. You heard it first on Thin Jack Order. I was in a urinal with Roger Ebert. Woo! Oh, my that's God. That's right. I know yeah, for I a fact that say, although like, he was a god among men, <laughs> oh my he actually god, yeah. did use urinal have... like anyone else. 
he he's fabulous, and I have to say that actually because I I do a lot of film review myself, obviously, and there's there's you know I read other people's reviews all the time, or I read critics nowadays, and and I'll get your insight on this. Do you think people are a little harsh? Because I think like I I just saw King Arthur not long ago with Charlie Charlie Hunnam, and I'm and I'm a fan of Charlie to begin with, but I I watched this and they they pounded really hard on the director and on his performance, and I thought it was a little unwarranted. I, I think critics are, are really kind of just really clear-cut, love it, hate it these days. But I'm curious yeah. to get your input on that. Your filmmaker, I think you you're right. I, I think there's a sort of a natural impulse. Uh, you know, when movie criticism is in itself a form of entertainment, among other things. So I think sure. there's a natural impulse if you, if you have some problem with a movie to amplify that, or if you like a movie to amplify that into loving. But love or hate is just a better story than, you know, it was okay. Um, right. So I think people do tend to sort of flip one way or the other, and sometimes a movie can kind of get caught in the crossfire. Oh, you betcha. Now, since you're a filmmaker, I don't get to – surprisingly, I haven't asked a lot of filmmakers this, but this is an extraordinary question, I think, which is, okay, so let's say you've done these movies, and, and one of your particular movies is reviewed by someone, and they hack you apart pretty good. And I hope that's never happened to you. I'm knocking on wood. But let's say, for instance, you've had a less than favorable review. You know, yeah. some filmmakers don't take that very well. <laughs> I mean, obviously, no filmmaker probably wants to get that, but we all, at some point, are going to get criticized for our work. So, in the past, have have, have you encountered that where people have been a little less than favorable? And and how do you handle that? Because I think some filmmakers almost have to develop an ego to begin with. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then somebody kind of, if they come along and say, "Yeah, you really didn't get the mark on that one," how do you respond to that? How do you react to that? How do you keep doing film then? You know what I'm saying? Or have you yeah, no, you're, I think you're right. The number one thing is to protect your own ego because that is part of what will keep you moving forward. Um, my <laughs> coping technique, I've gotten one or two uh, unkind reviews, uh, and my coping technique is to share the review with people that I'm close to and then uh, make fun of the person who wrote it. Uh, not in a public context, you know, but just in private with my friends. Uh, I t- we tear okay. them apart, and then we feel better. Um, actually, so there's one review. Could, this was actually a play that I did back in New York in like 2006. There's one review in the okay. New York Times that I still bring up that critic's name in conversation with my. I've never spoken to her. I've never met her. She's probably a lovely person, but her name still comes up sure. in conversation because she gave such a vicious uh, review like 11 oh. years ago. <laughs> oh, uh, but it becomes boy. a joke. Now I really get a lot. I gotcha. Now I'm going to be on pins and needles. Like here we are through this whole interview, and I'm thinking, oh my god, what is Keith going to say if the interview doesn't go well at the end? He's going to be like cursing my name for the next 17 years. Please don't let it happen. Don't let it happen, please. It depends on what you say about me, Cindy. You know. Ouch. We're in chartered territory here. Well, you know what I find interesting, actually, and one of the things that I'd like you to address as a filmmaker, of course, is um, I find it interesting that we live in a society these days where some people walk around and legitimately and and with good intent and do purge forth and produce good material from things like an iPhone. It blows my mind away that we live in 2017 and you can make a film on an iPhone, but I want to ask you specifically, are there certain pieces of equipment, cameras, et cetera, that you use that you find fundamentally uh, make for a better film for you personally? Uh, I am not a huge gearhead. I'm I'm not that obsessed with the technology of filmmaking. Um, I'm sort of more interested in in story and character, and usually I rely on a a DP, cinematographer, to to understand the technical aspect much better than I do. Um, But that being said, there are moments when you really appreciate a particular tool. 
Um, I think one of the one of the great gifts that you have with a lot of uh, these new digital cameras is just the you know something you don't get on an iPhone is you can't change lenses on an iPhone. Or I guess they, there's a way that you can maybe fake changing the lens, but the ability to change lenses is hugely hugely important because lenses are a language in and of themselves, like lighting, like camera movement, like anything else. Um, so the ability to say to your DP, oh, this is a, we're on a 50, let's go to an 85 or something like that, that it'll change the whole dynamic of the scene. It'll change the image in a really meaningful way. And that's something that I've gotten um, pretty, pretty fascinated by. Oh, very nice, actually. Well, and, and what I find interesting is when I first started researching and investigating you, the first thing that I drew, and of course, obviously, by going through your Facebook page and creeping all over you, because that's what journalists do, um, <laughs> you, you're huge on the poetry thing. And I've done two poetry books myself, and I, I have a love of poetry. So I want to ask you, first off, about the poetry stuff. First of all, have you published any um, poetic works? Because I haven't been able to find any in my research. No, I don't have anything like published. I've just been posting okay. it to Facebook, basically. Okay, well, then you should be posting it to a book, just throwing that out there, only because um, I find it intriguing and interesting, and I often, you know, I see people who put stuff out on social media or other places all the time, and it's really good that they never publish it, and then nobody really gets to see it. So I just thought I'd throw that bug out there. Your poetry is very interesting, and it, and it makes me smile. Some of it makes me smile. Some of it made me like, what? You know what I mean? <laughs> but it, it's intriguing, and it's interesting, and I think it's really cool. And so that's why I kind of threw that out there. I, I literally, in some ways, see you see more of the poet side of thing as I do the filmmaker. Obviously, of course, I haven't seen the entire body of work you've done. But in some ways, that's why I kind of assume that you, you have this great love of poetry, or am I just misreading this, or is it just something really cool to do? I do. I love poetry. I, I think part of the reason I'm enjoying it so much right now is because it's not my job and it's not my focus. Uh-huh. So I am able to sort of keep it on the side and put the thing on Facebook and then and then let it live whatever life it wants to live. Um, you know, okay. movies are expensive and they take a lot of time, and so you mm-hmm. do get very, very attached to the outcome of what you're doing. But if you write a poem and it takes you an hour and it's 15 lines uh, and then 25 people or 50 people like it on Facebook, then you're done. And that's great. And that's all it ever needs to be. So I, I think I'd love to do a collection of poetry at some point. But for right now, I'm really just enjoying kind of the purity of putting it out, getting a response and then moving on to something else. That's really cool, actually. And I'm going to venture to ascertain that some of uh, your strongest and sweetest characteristics derived from your father. I happen to see some information in the past that you've posted and put up, and so I'd like, if you don't mind, to kind of uh, talk to me a little bit about um, the imprint that your dad left in terms of uh, you as a person, in terms of your goals and your dreams, and how he just affected you or still affects you to this day. Yeah, I mean, there's no... um... There's no overstating how much of an inspiration my dad was for me. I mean, he was um, uh, God, he was an amazing person. He was a uh, he was an Olympic athlete, uh, canoeist. He won a bronze medal in the 1972 Munich Games. Uh, did a lot of important expedition uh, paddling and uh, and returned to the Olympics in 1992. Uh, so so he's a he's a model for me in terms of uh, someone who achieved at a very high level and never lost sight of his humanity. Uh, he never gave in to ego. Um, he never let himself get isolated from people. He, uh, he, he was the most grounded person in the world, the most humble person in the world. 
and um, and I, you know, every day I sort of, <laughs> every day I sort of hope and wish that I could be half the half the man that he was. He's just an incredible, um, sweet and and curious and uh, alive kind of person. And uh, yeah, he died about I think it was three years ago, and right. just uh, there's no. There's no overstating what kind of what kind of hole he leaves. It's it's um, uh, the the positive side of it is you <laughs> you you can ask yourself in a meaningful way. You know what would Jamie McEwen do? Uh, and it's not only his family who feels that way. I mean, a lot of my friends have have said similar things to me that they um, you know that he inspired them and that they they still kind of hold him close in their minds. And, and that obviously means a lot to me too. Oh, of course, definitely. So I have to ask the inevitable question, which is, do you feel that uh, any part of your dad is part of every one of the films you've done? And more importantly, if he were alive today and saw some of your work, what do you think he would say, meaning the more recent stuff that he might have missed? Uh, I I wish that he'd gotten a chance to see Seven Love. He actually, um, the timing was very, very strange. Uh, He died like three days into shooting Seven Lovers. Um, And we had to stop, stop production so that I could, be there in his last day sure. and all that, and and, uh, um, and of course there was part of me that thought I should have called off the whole production because uh, he was very sick and, and we kind of knew that uh, he didn't have a lot of time left. Um, and and I was encouraged, but my mom and my siblings all encouraged me to keep going and and finish the film, which I still don't know whether that was the right call. But but I'll, I'll always I'll always associate that movie with him, and he was tremendously excited about the casting process he was he was very very you know he wanted daily updates he he wanted to even and as i like i say he was he was very sick at the time and had other things to worry about but he was constantly um wanting to know what the updates were and how it was going and he liked the script and he was intrigued to see how the movie would would play on a screen because it's a it's a bizarre kind of movie you know um Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. So I, I, I do wish that he, yeah, you know, it's seven, seven different genres in a way, seven different stories. It, it's a, it's a, it's a. I think, I think it's the first time it's been attempted, as far as I know. Um, well, and, but yeah, and I, I would love, I would give anything to be able to show Dad that movie, and and I don't know what he would think of it, but I, I know that he'd, I know that he'd be excited to see it. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that, actually. And since, of course, I don't want to necessarily exclude the love fest from your mom, so talk to us a little bit about your mom. Tell us what your mom's all about. What's happening with her? Is she a filmmaker, too? Creative? Um, my mom is a sort of an all-around creative genius. Uh, she's a she's a cartoonist and author and songwriter and music producer. She started out doing greeting cards back in the, what would have been, late 70s early 80s or something like that about as long as i've been alive okay. and, uh, huge sure. success in greeting cards and then she moved on into children's books and then she did children's albums and she's uh she's sort of this whole cottage industry of uh of not just children's entertainment but primarily children's entertainment and uh kind of a huge inspiration in, in a in a different way you know she's someone who just her creativity never stops and she never settles for anything less than the best and it's uh it's a really intimidating kind of standard that she has set there because she's always done exactly what she wanted to do and she's always been hugely hugely successful uh on on every metric so uh trying to live up to that is is something of a feat 
Thank God. And then, of course, obviously, I know that you have siblings as well. You have a brother and a sister, of course. And so kind of, uh, I, I guess, have they followed along the footsteps of all the rest of you? Have they kind of gone in a different path? Are you all kind of scattered? Uh, we're we're relatively close geographically. My older sister is in New York City, which is only like I, I live in Connecticut, so it's like two hours away. Right. Um, okay. And then my younger sister and my brother both live uh, in or near our hometown where we grew up, uh, where my mom is also, and where I am also at the moment. Um, so we've kept we've kept pretty well together actually, which is nice. That is really, really cool. That's absolutely awesome. My goodness. Yeah. Just wanted to do a little background there. No, I was creeping. Doesn't that sound like an interesting word, folks? Creeping. Journalists can legally <laughs> creep on other people for what we call research for said interview. So sometimes when I'm interviewing a filmmaker, I purposely go through their page or they, I kind of try to get ascertain what they like to give me a background of things. So this is what I found out about you. Um, I love, I went through your movie list, and so I picked out some of these different things that you like. So, for instance, it happened one night in The Sting and Butch Cassidy. There seems to be this this correlation there with those things. And then I looked, mm. and I was like, okay, dude's into Roger Moore and House. Okay, but you have to explain this to me because you're the third person that I've interviewed. I don't. What is up with this craze involving Game of Thrones? I can't even try to watch that. <laughs> I've tried. I just can't. I can't. You people, it's like Walking Dead too. It's like they're, it's like your crack or your cocaine. I'm like, what? It, what is it with this? Okay, explain this to me. What is up with this Game of Thrones, Gaga sort of? <gasps> can't live without watching it. Explain that to I, me, please. I, I feel I like I have a, a kind of a unique perspective on this. I won't say unique, but but unusual because I've been on the side where you are, where okay. you know this thing is huge and you don't get it and you're not sure you want to. Right. Uh, right. Almost exactly one year ago, I was in that position uh, of knowing that people watched Game of Thrones. And I had seen one or two episodes here or there at parties, and I was completely indifferent to it. And I, I knew that p- characters were constantly being murdered, and that didn't sound very cool to me. Uh, right. So I, I just wasn't on board, and I wasn't interested. And I was at a Fourth of July party last year with a good friend who works in the industry, whom I respect. And she learned that I had not gotten into Game of Thrones, and she grabbed my arm and she said, you have to watch this show. It's the greatest show. You have to watch it. And, you know, this is someone whose opinion I take seriously. Uh, So I turned to my sister. My little sister was there at the time. And I said, well, you've already seen the show, but would you start it again with me? Would you start from episode one and watch it together? And, uh, And she said, yes. So we made this ritual. Of, I would go over. She has a, a new house uh, here in Connecticut, and I would go over to her house, uh, and we'd have dinner, and we would uh, pour out some whiskey, and we would sit with her and her husband, and we would watch you know, like three to five episodes of the show. And it was the perfect introduction, the right people, the right place, the right whiskey. And, and from the end of the first episode, I was completely so I had seen episodes before, but I had seen them in the middle, right? And I couldn't get on board. But when I watched the first episode, especially the last five seconds of the first episode, I was completely sold, and uh, my life has never been the same. That is that is just wild. I can't relate. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, obviously, <laughs> if, you, if you said Sons of Anarchy or, like, Dexter or, like, Boardwalk Empire, I would totally get that. Like, I have the same fixation with that. Who's the guy with the crack or the – he may oh – he's in a van or no, he's in a – you know what I'm trying to oh, say? Radio yes, show. I think so. Breaking he, Bad. The, the dude that makes the – yeah, yeah, yeah. 
What is up with that thing, too? I'm like, dude's that, making that I don't know. and he's in his underwear. What the hell is that? I mean, right? I mean, what people, is that? People say that that's brilliant Shakespearean drama. I've, I've never seen it. I cannot comment upon it. I'm, I, people that I love tell me that it's okay. great, so I should probably give that a watch at some point. But exactly. Game of Thrones, and, honestly, and, you know, it, it, it was really? – last year was a good year for me, and the best thing that happened – like, like I got to perform my little sister's wedding ceremony last year, and I wrote my first oh, yeah. novel last year, and uh, I forget other things. I did a lot of good things last year. Watching Game of Thrones was the best thing that I did all year. Wow. Uh, and I, I don't know how to defend that no except to say that the, the richness of the Weird. world that they have created is totally unparalleled in my experience. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything That's that so just sweeps you away in that way. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. And like I said, I, I'm trying. You know what I mean? I, I'm sure I'll get to a point where I'll try to muddle through like a whole season or something. But I'm like, I do it. I just can't do it. I'm like, I don't know what it is. That's why I had to ask you, of course. So backtrack a little bit. On, uh, I've seen like two episodes or whatever. It's like the same thing with The Walking Dead. My kids are like 10 and 12. And they're like, you got to watch this. And I'm like, why are you watching Walking Dead? Because I know you're not watching it, you know, watching it here. And so they they caught a glimpse of it or whatever, and they're all excited. And I'm watching this, and heads are popping off, and there's blood all over the place. And I'm like, dude, I'm not into this either. You know, I don't understand the whole – I just – I don't get it. I, I saw a couple episodes of both shows, and I'm like, maybe I'm just not giving it enough time. You know what I mean? Like maybe I need to, like, ease into it a little bit. Honestly, sort of the thing. way that Game of Thrones fans talk about the show is often a disservice to the show. Because people really? tend to fixate on the death and the violence and the no character is right. safe. And and actually, there's a lot that's going on that has nothing to do with any of that. There's a lot about politics. There's a lot about uh, people's emotional journeys, about like what it means to be a human being on this planet. Uh, like I say, just the most intensely rich world building you could, you've ever experienced. And the element of people getting decapitated is like kind of a minor part of it, really. But people sort of, people including the fans, kind of tend to fixate on that, which is too bad. Yeah, it is. You know, and now that I, I mean, now that I'm listening to you, I'll have to make time for that. Of course, you know, when you interview people from TV, you know, it's kind of like it's almost like not fun anymore. It's like homework all the time. So I'm like, I want to hmm. actually watch them just because I'm not going to interview somebody or this isn't going to happen. So yes, you've now encouraged me to at least have to sit through another episode. Yay! I can't well, I hope wait. you'll be thanking me and not cursing me. Yeah. Remember that whole critic thing? And we won't go back to that. So I'm curious, <laughs> because obviously you're clearly a Robert Redford fan, because I see the whole thing and Butch Cassidy connection, et cetera. So let's say that you and Robert Redford are in a room together. I'm curious what you admire about his filmmaking and or acting within a film. And is that... I guess really the bigger question being is do you want to parallel or do you parallel the styles that have any particular director or filmmaker out there in your opinion? Oh man, that's a good question. Uh, the, the person, the person who inspires me most, I mean, in a way I'm not, although seven lovers is largely a meditation on style and kind of puts style right. to the forefront because it does play out in these seven genres I, by nature. I'm not, very style focused i'm more about the story and trying to get the story across as clearly as possible and i think oftentimes style or people's ideas of style kind of get in the way um so most of the filmmakers that i admire are people who are not necessarily stylists or or thought of as stylists but who are putting the narrative first um so christopher nolan 
is a huge, huge touch point for me. Uh, and I oh. think he's a brilliant filmmaker, but it's, it's not, he's not your Martin Scorsese filmmaker. He's not your Quentin Tarantino filmmaker. It's not what he's doing with the tools that arrests you. What arrests you is what's happening in the story. Um, he's all about story. He's all about putting characters in interesting situations and seeing how they react. Um, and in a, in a way, I admire those filmmakers who are able to kind of recede into the background and let the characters in the story take prominence. Ah, oh, very nice. Very nice. But then, as I say, Seven yeah. Lovers completely contradicts that because it's clearly the style at the forefront until you reach a point where you understand what the larger story is, and then hopefully it becomes about people. You betcha. I want to switch gears a little bit because to the listening audience or those that may not know this about um, you, Keith, you're highly educated, or I should say you have two levels of education, which I believe make you highly educated, meaning you've been to Amherst College and you got your BA in English. And then, of course, you went to Columbia University to get your Master in Fine Arts. Two sides to this question, and I always find it intriguing to keep asking it because there's always a different answer, which is, there are some people that literally have um, great inspiration and passion and very little background in education, and they go on to produce some great artistic works. And then there are people such as yourself who have a high level of education in various areas that go on to produce different films as well, um, and all of which, in my opinion, are extremely highly accelerated art forms in general. So my question to you is, to those that might be listening in, Obviously, no one ever wants to say, oh, no, you don't need any kind of education because we all need some form. But in today's world, being an active filmmaker, talk to us a little bit about do you feel you need to be highly educated to be highly successful as a filmmaker? And do you advocate, because there's some people out there that advocate to the belief that filmmakers still need to do continuing education about their craft to stay top shelf? Uh, that is a, that is a complex question. I, I know. Sorry. <laughs> well, no, no, it's a good question. Uh, I think we have to distinguish between, uh, education as a, as a principle of learning and improving yourself and education as, uh, an official institutional process. Uh, there are people who are very, very highly educated who don't have a high school diploma, but who have educated yeah. themselves. Um, you can read books, you can talk to people, you can educate yourself as much as you want to. Uh, the best reason to go to school, if you know what you want to do with your life, is you make connections with other people who are doing a similar thing. So if you're a filmmaker, the best reason to go to film school, and I, I didn't understand this until uh, years after I kind of made the decision not to go, but the best reason to go to film school is to make contacts and meet people who are doing similar things. Um, and if you don't know what you want to do with your life, the best reason to go to school is probably to get exposed to a wide variety of disciplines and hopefully fall in love with one particular thing that you can then um, pursue. I think an education is phenomenally important, but a diploma doesn't necessarily mean that you're educated and a lack of diploma doesn't necessarily mean that you're not, if that makes any sense. No, it does. It totally does, as a matter of fact. And obviously, of course, you know, I've written four films, and, I, and one of the reasons that I have now decided to not direct my own film is because I think it takes a special sort of eye, and it, for lack of a better term, being a little eclectic, if you will, to be able to capture um, somebody's words and somebody's screenplay on screen. 
So my question to you is, if you are a novice out there, meaning, like, say, for instance, myself or someone else, do you think it's can – you, can you be a novice and excel at this? I mean, can you just walk right in one day and say, you know what, I'm going to take this little Internet course and I'm going to learn how to be a filmmaker and we're going to do this? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there might be some people out there and everybody's got a great idea for a film, but does that mean that they can be a director? You know what I mean? Yeah. I I think <laughs> – this is a tough thing to talk and about. He's you, you, you have to believe that you're capable of doing it in order to have any hope of doing it. It's, it's sure. likely, I, I mean, okay, well, I'll talk about myself. I, okay. When I was, let's say, 16, 17, assumed that I was just fundamentally a brilliant uh, film, that I was brilliant at everything, basically. I, I have a very, very high opinion of myself. And I thought my poetry was great because I wrote it, and I thought my plays were great because I wrote them. And some of them were good and some of them were not. But I, I, uh, it took me years and years and years and years and years to get to the point where I was making work that was as good as what I felt I could do the whole time. Um, Ira Glass has a great video series about this on YouTube, about, how, about storytelling and, and becoming a storyteller and how your taste will be better than your achievement for an enormous amount of your career. And that you reach this point where your achievement is on the level of your taste, and that's when you've really kind of arrived. And for me, it was at least a decade before I was making anything that was anywhere in the realm of what I saw in my head, what I saw myself making, what I felt I was capable of. So you have to be deluded to a certain extent about your own ability um, sure. but only to a certain extent. If you're completely deluded, you'll never learn anything. And if you're not at all deluded, uh, you probably will get discouraged and give up. Oh, of course. I understand. And the other thing that we talk a lot about is, and I'm not sure what your experience is like, um, but to those that um, are in the audience, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of times people will have a great idea or a concept that they think would make for a great movie. But what some of the things, the little details that people tend to forget about, and this isn't so little, but we live in a world, once again, where technology has now allowed us certain gifts and opportunities like Kickstarters, crowdfunding, et cetera. Have you had exposure or actual usage of some of those platforms? I'm just curious. I always like to ask, um, elaborate, if you will, in terms of, Financing isn't always fun, but necessary, of course, for filmmaking. And so what would you advise to people in terms of if you've got a passion, you believe in that project 150% and you're not going to quit your job, how do you finance these films? How do you get them made and how do you get them noticed? Uh, those are issues that I'm still very much struggling with. Uh, I don't. Oh, no, like I'm sorry. I can... <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I, I, I don't think I can speak from a position of, uh, of competence in a way because I'm still, I'm still working on uh, what's my approach to financing, what's my approach to promotion, how do you get these things noticed. These are questions that kind of torment me day to day. I think there's a lot to be said for doing things as cheaply as you can and learning to do them cheaply. I think that gives you right. more options. Um, Kickstarter is good, in my experience, really good for relatively small amounts, probably really good right. for a short film, maybe not so good for a feature film, at least not if it's the only thing you're relying on. Um, right. I think, I mean, my, my best advice, 
from my own position of uh, of ignorance and fear uh, is just that people have to keep making stuff however they can make it. And gotcha. at some point, the the huge paychecks will, we hope, materialize. But you you don't want to spend your whole life waiting for the tap on the shoulder. You don't want to spend your whole life waiting for the windfall. So I think it's important to be doing what you can do while you wait for the resources to do what you dream. I would agree with that, definitely, without a doubt. See, you did have the answer. You just didn't know it. We have <laughs> well, it's an answer, but I don't know if it's right for Let's everyone. Let's just say that. I'm the Keith cheerleader for today. We all know that Keith's projects are going to go everywhere. They're going to excel, and he's going to be the next Martin Scorsese. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking right now. I'm on From that. Like, I'm on that bandwagon right now, so let's go with that. That's awesome. Now, I know that back in 2009, you had actually started Crazy Lake Pictures. And to those of you that don't know, you do, um, in addition to doing shorts and features, you also do music videos. And I want to talk a little bit about that because some of my friends do music videos. And so um, I'm, I'm curious of the technical side of doing music videos, like how, how intricately technical does that become? And how often are you getting an opportunity, like ratio-wise? I'm just trying to figure out your days. Like are you primarily working on film? Are you doing videos? Is it potpourri every day? What's that life like? Uh, the music video is kind of something that happened to me by accident. Uh, just happened to know people in bands who wanted videos made, and uh, and I was their film friend uh, with experience working on a low budget. Um, the reality of music videos, especially now, is almost none of them have a significant budget. So it's largely right. about what can we do cheaply, what can we do easily that's still fun and dynamic and cool. Uh, I I had sort of a a brief. I think this was when I was at Columbia, actually. Music videos were perfect because I had constrained time outside of school, um, so kind of small-scale movie projects were much more uh, likely under those circumstances than doing uh, feature films. So I had a period of maybe two or three years where I was doing a lot of music video work, and then it kind of trailed off, and this year is actually the uptick again where just sort of by coincidence, a couple of the artists I've worked with before have come back around and said, we'd like you to do something new. Um, so this year I'm kind of throwing myself back into the music video world. Um, it's really it's really fun. It's fun to do something that is limited in time. It's fun to do something that has a little bit of a built-in audience. And it's fun to tell a story in, in purely visual terms without recording sound, without writing dialogue. It's challenging, but it's also kind of liberating at the same time. And all the videos I've done have been strongly narrative. That's what's kind of bizarre about my music videos. There's very little performance. There's very little of the kind of classic montage elements that you get um, in a traditional music video. My, mine are always stories because that's all I really know how to do. Well, and I'm uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I've somehow envisioned that you were in a music video in a bow tie for some reason. Probably because I've seen you in that lovely bow tie that you had on. But I could totally see you doing a music video. I know that's weird, isn't it? <laughs> but I could. I like totally could see you doing something like that. Because you seem to have that quirky sort of personality slash sense of humor where it fits. You know what I'm talking about? That sort of thing. Maybe it's just me. Probably is. I, I have been in drinking, so. one video uh, for Ooh. a song that my mom wrote, and that was called "Be Like a Duck." Uh, cool. And I was the I was the Thank main you. singer in that video because I was the main singer on the song actually. And then the uh, the video that I'm working on right now, also for my mom, I cast myself in the lead role just because uh, I wanted to, and no one could stop me. Look at him; he's being all liberty. I'm going to do what I want. I'm the boss. <laughs> That's awesome. 
I did run Anybody it by mom. I did say, is it okay if I play the lead in, in the video? And she said, that would be well, great. That, It'd be yeah, great. It should be Because she's my that would be awesome. Oh, of course. Now, if anybody who's listening in might want to utilize your services, are you relatively accessible, meaning that are you limited to Connecticut, New York City, or whatever have you? Just throwing it out there to the audience in case anybody might need anything. How accessible are you? Or um, I am certainly open to travel if uh, somebody wants to pay for my travel, yeah. Oh, um, cool. Mostly, mostly Connecticut, mostly New York, um, but if someone's got a great video that they want to shoot in L.A. or uh, you know, Spain, I don't know. Uh, I would I would certainly be open like to having Italy. that conversation. Yeah, if awesome. Italy would be great, or maybe uh, maybe New Zealand. I always right. wanted to go to New Zealand. Oh uh, basically, God, if you want to fly me somewhere, I will make a beautiful video for you. That's kind of like Game of Thrones slash Lord of the Ring ish. Because <laughs> I'm still trying yeah, to figure that out. Okay. That, yeah. Yeah. No kidding. So um, obviously, I've said this before on shows, which is oftentimes people creep on my show page and my personal page when I list up people that I'm having on the show. And so, of course, we always have to ask that obligatory question only because there are people that follow me that say the words, is that guy single? Because he's good looking. So apparently you're good looking. (laughs) And inquiring minds want to know, are you single? Oh, my gosh. I I did not think that I was going to be answering this question here today. Heck, Uh, yeah. That's what our show's all about. (laughs) Is it... it, um... Is it strictly professional for me to give an honest answer to that, or am I supposed to be coy? Well, if you knew me well enough, which you'll get to know, I don't bullshit, and I like very honest. So I think <laughs> People we should usually go with give the you a straight answer, answer is my question. Yes. Well, almost all of the time, except when I ask the trick question. There's always usually a trick question in the show. Like it used to be, do you have Michael Madsen's phone number? But now I have Michael Madsen's info, so I don't oh, need wow. that anymore. So i got to do a new one now. So now it's got to be like... I know, Keith, that you're going to tell me today because she is on my top five interviews of all time that you're going to give me Cher's cell phone number so I can hook her up with an interview, right? Because that's like the only important question of this interview. And you're going to say yes right now. Of of course. Of course. If you give me Michael Madsen's, then I'll give you Cher's. (laughs) I think you're bullshitting. I'm just going to pretend. uh, I'm definitely just saying what you want to hear. But uh... Yeah, that interview is over. Click. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so inquiring minds, can you feel it? Like the director light, it's, it's, it's peering right in. So everybody's waiting for the magical. I, 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 you know, I am flattered by the idea that anyone might actually be interested in this. Interview. The answer is yes, that I am, that I am single. Really? Get out of doubt. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm I've been single for a long time, actually. That. that seems to be kind of, uh, kind of my life. A director not... thing. <laughs> it does. It seems Maybe to be a director is. thing. I, I don't know. I, Directors I'm, I'm and musicians. I never thought of myself as someone who would be single forever, but uh, but uh, here oh, I am, 35 years old, and I'm still a single man. And you're still young, too. You're 35. I just had a, I'm not going to say how old I am. And so I'm on the opposite side of the fence, because the other day I was like, you know, I used to say all the time, I don't know why I'm single. Now I know why I'm single, apparently. I'm a loser, apparently, who's short and fat. That was my answer what? last week. I'm like, I'm just short, fat. Have you looked at me? I'm short <laughs> and fat. Who said that to you? I said that to myself. I'm like, I must be. I'm like, that dating dynamic, you know this. We're kind of in the same field. When you start working in an industry where, you know, I deal with filmmakers and actors and producers and a lot of press and publicity, you know, like PR people, it's difficult to find somebody who kind of fits in your world. Do you know what I mean? Like, especially, you know, when you travel around with different actors. 
I, I love my actors. I love my directors. Musicians are a little flaky. Directors can be a little flaky. It's the ego thing. I think I, I have a hard time with egotistical people. I just don't do that well. I like very yeah. grounded, very, very cool people. So it can be a little difficult. Yeah, but no, that was my kick because I just had a birthday and I'm really old now. So now it's I'm short and fat <laughs> and aging, and that's why. I don't know what it will be tomorrow. I don't know. I anticipate the the hangover tomorrow. I'll be thinking about this. So we'll have to see. But thank you for answering that question very honestly. We appreciate that. So to anyone sure. in the listening yeah. audience, yes, the director is available, and he could make a love story about you and him. But um, <laughs> well, that was kind of cute. Absolutely. Okay, now that I've been really funny here, I have a very serious question because you're okay. a writer just as I am. You've written nine projects, obviously, which is very, very commendable. Um. I just want to talk about process a little bit because that's a big thing for me. I have somewhat of a pseudo process myself when I write um, plays versus writing films, et cetera. And you're considered a playwright as well as a filmmaker. So talk to me a bit just about process and how do you, how do you deal with the proverbial writer's block? I mean, every one of my guests I keep asking, nobody really has a concrete answer. How do you deal with all that and, and where do you get this inspiration to create such cinematic genius? Oh, wow. Uh, well, thank you for the compliment. I, I, in a way, I kind of don't believe in writer's block. Uh, I experience it, but I don't believe in it. When you think you're blocked, it's because you either don't want to work or you are holding yourself to too high a standard. Um, sure. If you sit in front of the, the computer, in my case, the computer, and you think you have absolutely nothing, what you really mean is you have nothing that meets your standards. And sometimes I think the thing to do is just to lower your standards and just write something that isn't very interesting or isn't the best you're capable of. And who knows, maybe it's better than you, uh, than you think it is. I think one of the things that I do when I am seriously engaged in writing on a project is I hold myself responsible for writing a certain number of pages per hour. And that's one of the ways that I keep myself from second guessing every decision is I say to myself, well, you know, worst comes to worst. If it's a screenplay, let's say, yeah, you know, it has to be at least three pages an hour. I have to write three pages an hour. Otherwise I'm, I'm worthless, right. you know? And that does help me to kind of just keep going even when I'm not totally confident the scene is working or the script is working. Uh, and of course you can always cut that stuff later if it's terrible or, or just fix it and make it better. That's cool. I like that answer. That's awesome. I'll think about that the next time I'm throwing something across the room. Because some of us throw <laughs> pencils and pens. I get. I just did that two days ago. I literally am in this writing project. I'm doing. I don't know if you ever had to do these technical jobs because you need to get paid. And so one of these technical jobs I do involves IRS material. I can't even begin to tell you how many pencils and pens and things have been thrown in this kitchen for the last month <laughs> on the basis of writing such dry, ridiculous material to sing. So kids, the moral of the story is don't give up because you can write words on paper that become magic, that eventually become magic on screen. Now, speaking of which, I picked out out of all your productions before we get to the major one, um, Hero by Proxy and the Queen Bee of Mushroom Town. How cool is that? (laughs) First of all, listen to that title. Just let it resonate in your head. Okay, I want you to surmise those two movies and then tell me the differences in directing style between the two and tell me which of the two you favor personally. Ooh. So those two movies, they were made, uh, these are short films that we're talking about. They were made in the same year. They were both made in uh, 2009. And they're they're pretty much at uh, 
at opposite ends of the busiest filmmaking year of my life. So Here by Proxy was shot, sorry, sorry, Queen Bee of Mushroom Town was shot in March of 2009 as part of the New York City film race. So this is one of these speed challenges where you're given 24 hours and you have to write and shoot and edit a short film, which if you've never made films before is not very much time. Uh, and the kind of the idea of it is it stimulates your creativity, like kind of along the lines of what I was saying earlier, because you cannot second guess yourself. You simply don't have time. Um, and it was my friend, Mike Lavoie, who said, let's do this. Let's enter this competition. Let's make a film. He assembled the, the crew, the cast and crew. I was on board as writer slash director. And Mike and I had never really worked together in this way before. Um, so we came okay. up with this ridiculous little story. He was, he was a friend and we'd worked together. Like I had directed him and stuff, but we never really, really collaborated. Um, and we came up with this silly three and a half minute film that, that really makes very little sense. Uh, but it tickled us. It made us laugh. It made us smile. It was quirky and bizarre. Mm-hmm. It was called the queen bee of mushroom town. And, uh, and we were really, really happy with how it came out. Uh, and then we swept the New York Film Race Awards. We were like the Titanic of the New York Film Race Awards. Uh, you know, we won, I don't know, we won seven awards or something like that. Uh, awesome. And we were very excited about this. We, we, you know, we were proud of ourselves, and our collaboration had worked out really well. We'd been a good creative team. Um, and so I think I was the one who said to Mike, you know, there's something in this time-limited filmmaking stuff uh, and, and we're obviously a good team. So let, let's do this summer, let's do 12 films in 12 weeks. Uh, every week oh we'll write God. and shoot and edit a short film. And we'll make a blog about it and people will be interested because it's weird and it's crazy and it's never been done before. And, uh, and Mike, God bless him, said, uh, okay. Uh, so we spent our summer making 12 films in 12 weeks. Uh, I did not direct all of them. I didn't write all of them. Uh, I acted in some, Mike acted in some, Mike directed some, wrote some. It was just sort of uh, catch as catch can. A bunch of our friends came in and collaborated and helped out with one project or another. And by the end of the summer, we had made uh, like six or seven pretty good films and, and five or six like kind of weak films. But by the end of the day, we had, we had generated a lot more material than we would have otherwise. Uh, so Hero by Proxy was the 11th of the 12 films and that one was, the assignment was to make a film based on a title suggested by our blog readership. So the blog readership uh-huh. voted, they selected the title Hero by Proxy. And I had flown in a friend of mine from college, Michael Roten, uh, sorry, Michael Redfield is his professional name, Michael okay. Redfield. Uh, he and I had collaborated on my first feature film ever when I was 21 years old, when I had no idea what I was doing this thing called Miles. I literally almost died making that movie. So I flew, and he's also a brilliant composer, he's a wonderful actor, and, and all this stuff. So I flew him in from Los, I, don't, I shouldn't say I flew him in, he flew in from Los Angeles to, uh, to direct this film so that Mike and I could star in it, because I hadn't done much acting that summer, and I wanted to do more acting. Okay. Uh, so it became this, based on the premise of Hero by Proxy, it became this funny little film noir spoof where Mike is, uh, I'm this sort of uh, burnout private detective, and Mike is okay. a writer friend of mine who's tagging along on my rounds and who still thinks it's the 1940s and Bogart is the model of 
the private eye, and I'm sort of trying to tell him that's not how it works, and he's pretty convinced that is how it works. Uh, and it's a strange, uh, strange movie that involves um, uh, Mike Lavoie's uh, bare buttocks, among other things. Um, but <laughs> See the fun stuff but, we talk about on the show, kids? There you go. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, yeah. That, that could be a reason to watch or a reason not to watch. I don't know. Uh, but, That's so cool. uh, but he's a good-looking guy, you know. Uh, and, yeah, so that, that, yeah. Was, uh, that was that movie. And it, it, my, my buddy, uh, Michael Redfield, had never directed a film in his life, uh, and he killed it. He did a beautiful job. He also wrote the score. The score was amazing. It was all these horns. It was very dramatic. It was very noir. Uh, if I had to choose one of those films, I'm going to say Queen Bee of Mushroom Town, only because it was the one that kicked off the whole experiment and that creative relationship with Mike Lavoie, who actually produced the music video I shot last weekend. Okay, I gotcha. Yep, I totally get it. I do. Was Which that too long an answer? No, that brings us to Seven Loves. Oh, Seven Lovers, yes. Seven Lovers. Yes, so tell everybody about Seven Lovers, and then tell them where they can find it. Yes, I would love I'm to. Gonna, wait a minute, no, you don't have to tell them where they're going to find it, because I'll tell them where they That's the next question, which is where to find it. So tell them about Seven Lovers. Okay, yeah. So uh, Seven Lovers is a uh, feature film uh, that I wrote and directed, and we shot it in New York City. This is uh, summer of 2014, and it's just been released finally uh, about a month ago. And the the premise of the movie is we follow this one young woman uh, in her travails and triumphs on the New York City dating scene. Uh, We follow her through seven different romances in her life, but the romances are all intercut with each other, so they kind of follow a parallel okay. arc. Um, we get first kiss, first kiss, first kiss, first kiss, first kiss, first kiss, um, and then eventually we get you know break up, break up, break up, break up, break up, break up. I'm not sure if that's seven, mm. but uh, but they're all intercut, and then each romance has its own unique cinematic vocabulary. One romance is a sure. black and white old Hollywood musical. One romance is very, very spare cutout style animation. One is found footage. Uh, one of them is all wide shots. One of them is all montages. It's just me kind of playing around with the tools of cinema um, to express the character's disorientation and uh, to express what all these relationships have in common along with what separates them. Uh, so it's sort of a meditation on love and dating and how our world changes and to some extent we change when we enter into a new uh, romantic situation. Um, And then by the end... Go ahead. Go ahead. um, By the end, it does sort of become... It does sort of coalesce into one story. By the end, you know why you're following this person and what her dilemma is. And there is an actual conventional ending, although it takes us a while to to get there. To finally get there, absolutely. And and from what I have seen so far, I have yet to finish it completely, so I apologize in that. That's the... That's kind of the downside as it relates to finding 50,000 other things. I mean, I have to be constantly watching films and doing films and all this good stuff. But I intend upon watching the rest of it. However, I have watched enough to make a few assertions, which is to say to this, folks, um, it's a movie that needs to be seen, that should be seen, and should be watched more than once. That much I will tell you. Now, there's a couple things I want to say to you. First of all, you should know this. Uh, We're in a blog talk radio format, which I'm totally saying sucks today. Let me tell you why. Because I planned two (laughs) shows in a row. I've been talking almost two hours. You're my second show today. I had to parallel both of you, meaning that I had Dr. Feldman at one, I had you at two, and they cut you off at that exact two-hour mark. mark. So we're going to be cut off in four minutes, which makes me mad, which means I have to wrap everything up. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read all the ways that people can find you, and then I have a question or two for you. So okay. I'm going to read this off. You need to pronounce your last name for me because I don't want to screw it up. Oh, you said it right. It's Boynton. It is Boynton. Okay. So here yep. we go, folks. The movie site itself is sevenloversmovie.com. Some of Keith's work can be found on Amazon, iTunes, Google, YouTube. He has a LinkedIn profile. He has an IMDb profile. He is on Vimeo. His actual company is crazylakepictures.com. That would be the website. As it relates to Facebook, he has both a personal page, and again, it's Keith with the last name spelled B-O-Y-N-T-O-N, and he also has a page for Seven Lovers Movie, and that's on Facebook as well. As far as his Twitter handle, it's at the Keith Boynton, and of course, Instagram, two different places, at Keith Boynton and Seven Lovers Movie. Have I missed anything? No, that was amazingly comprehensive. Well, I am a journalist. So I only have two other questions for you, obviously, which is this is the important one because I was listening to you. And so normally I do this lovely soliloquy where I get to tell the guests what I think of them. I'll have to tell you that myself privately off of the air. But two things, which is, gosh, I hope you come back the next time you do anything or everything. And I hope that I've done a good enough job for you. I don't want to forget to mention that Christopher LaPonta, I can't wait till you come on the show. I told him today you were coming on, so I hope he listens. Christopher, I've told him, I finally met him in person for the first time this last year. He just rocks my world in the best way possible. He's the coolest friend. He's the coolest father. He's the coolest person. You're just a badass, Christopher. And we both, I'm going to take liberty to say we both just adore him. Um, So there's that. So the very last question I have before you get cut off and I get cut off is this. Um, We talked about your father and we've now talked about seven lovers. And I was wondering, um, you may not know this, but I am hosting my film festival in New York City at the end of September. And I would be highly honored if you would consider allowing me to screen Seven Lovers at my festival. Oh, wow. That would be great. I, I would love be, it. I, I thought it would be something where I could screen it and we could kind of do it as an homage to your dad. I thought that would be really cool. That would be wonderful. Yeah, no, that would, sounds great. Yay! Oh, my God, he didn't say no. I always get terrified because, <laughs> like, when I ask people stuff, they're going to be like, hell no. And I'm going to be like, awkward moment. <laughs> he didn't say No. Yay to me! Air, right? I'm like totally no, that, yay that, to me. That sounds we'll awesome. talk. Well, yeah, we'll have to talk about that off air, of course, because they're going to cut us off here. But I just, I want to say thank you so much. I, I want to say that, like I said, hopefully, I hope that I did justice to all of your works and to you. I do hope that you'll consider coming back again. And I can't I'd thank love you to. enough for really awesome. time. Come on, really? That's awesome. See, there's yeah, a no, really thing. Ninety seconds. So. so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clip you off here. I'm going to say my goodbye, and I'll stay in touch. I'll send you a note right after the show gets done, and we'll get into further detail about it. But thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Cindy. Have a good rest of your day. All right, dear. You too. Take care. Bye. All right, one more time. SevenLoversMovie.com, CrazyLakePictures.com. He is on YouTube. He has an IMDb profile. He is on LinkedIn and Vimeo, iTunes, Google, and Amazon. Um, thanks so much to everybody that listened in today for our two-hour marathon. Sorry that you got cut off very unexpectedly, Keith. I hope you guys have a great weekend. I'll be back on the radio as of Monday. Check the show page for further details. Again, thanks so much for everybody, and you have a great day.